I don't have to follow that, but that the Lord is certainly capable of following that. All right, so we're beginning at Acts 22, verse 30, through Acts 23, verse 11. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Well, maybe that announcement wasn't such a a bad segue because the character that gave us the announcement comes to us directly from this period of time that we're looking at today. So if that was a bit of a stretch, I'm sorry. I want to ask you a question, just to start. If you could be anyone, living or dead, who would you be? Have you ever been asked that? It's the kind of question that gets asked once in a while in kids' games or in personality assessments or some other get-to-know-you context. If you could be anyone in the world, who would you choose to be? Uh, If you're into sports, you might choose to be a current star or some great from the past, Gretzky or Babe Ruth, perhaps. Maybe you want to just be rich. And you might choose to be Bill Gates or some Arabian sheik. Maybe you'd love to be known for centuries and have been Alexander the Great. Maybe you'd love to be a great author or actor, hero, beauty, rock star, composer. If you could be anyone, who would you be? Maybe as a Christian, you think it would have been pretty cool to be Peter or John who actually walked and talked with Jesus. Maybe you would think it'd be cool to be Mary or Joseph or Paul. 
Peter was killed for his faith in Christ. John was exiled, imprisoned. Mary and Joseph were on the run for a while. Today we're going to follow the Apostle Paul. After his arrest, through five hearings before Jewish rulers and governors and a king, it takes place over two years. Now we're covering actually a pretty large section of scripture today. From the end of chapter 21 right through the end of chapter 26. And this is, in a way, a single event in Paul's life. It all hangs together. There's several episodes, but taken together, they form a single event. And that event is his life as a prisoner before departing for Rome, which happens in chapter 27. When Paul was dramatically converted to Christ in Acts chapter 9, the Lord's word concerning Paul at that time was that Paul would carry Jesus' name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And our passage today kind of puts the period on that statement. Paul had expressed earlier his intention to go to Rome, and our passage gives the account of how he would get to Rome. It's very different than what Paul originally intended. God has his own ways and timelines sometimes. The characters in this event include a violent mob, a Roman army commander, the powerful in Jerusalem, governors and a king in Caesarea, those who had both the power and the means to indulge all of their pleasures, and Paul, beaten, imprisoned for two years. If you could be anyone, who would you be? I'm going to go through this story with you this morning. Background. Paul, in chapter 21, has come to Jerusalem with the very strong suspicion that affliction, persecution, awaited him there. But I don't think that even he envisioned what that would be like. At the temple... A group of people who considered him an enemy of Judaism and of the Jewish people whipped up a mob and started beating him to death. And only the intervention of a Roman tribune and his soldiers saved his life. But they saved his life by arresting him and putting him in chains. And when the Roman tribune tried to actually get an explanation for what was going on, He couldn't, and so the soldiers took Paul away. And when they took Paul away, they actually carried him because the mob was pressing in so violently against him. That's where we left Paul last week. And then come the scenes that play out over the next five chapters. There are seven scenes. Scene one is chapter 21, verse 37, through chapter 22 and verse 21. Having been rescued from the mob, Paul asks the tribune a question, and the tribune, hearing Paul speak Greek, is surprised and wonders if Paul was the Egyptian who had tried to lead a rebellion a few years back. Now, this Egyptian, by the way, was a self-styled Messiah who had led a crowd up the Mount of Olives and told them that at his word, the walls of Jerusalem would collapse. 
But the soldiers kind of preempted his attempt at this and came out to deal with the crowd. And in the commotion, the Egyptian escaped. Now, this didn't make the Egyptian look very good in the eyes of the Jews. And the tribune now thinks that maybe this is the explanation for the riot in the temple. And he asks Paul, was that you? And Paul says, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus. Listen, can I talk to the crowd? And he's given permission, and he goes out in the steps, probably guarded, waves his hand until people are quiet, and then he speaks. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up right here in Jerusalem. I was educated by Gamaliel. By the way, to our day, Gamaliel is one of the highest, most respected rabbis in Jewish history. Paul says, I was educated by Gamaliel to strictly obey the law, and I was as zealous for God as you are. I persecuted Christians, some to death, many to prison. In other words, this man who was nearly beaten to death moments before for his being anti-Judaism says, look, I'm a good Jew. I was as good a Jew, if not more so, than any of you. And Paul says, the high priest and the elders can testify to this. They knew me. They know me. Do you really think that I could be that virulently anti-Jew? From there, Paul goes on to recount his conversion, his encounter with the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road, back in Acts chapter 9. Outside Damascus, he had been blinded by a light from heaven and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus. Jesus sends him into the city, tells him to await instructions. And through a Christian in Damascus, the Lord tells Paul that he has been set apart to be a witness for Jesus. And as we said, a witness to Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So here is Paul now before the children of Israel. Paul also relates how later at the temple he had been praying and Jesus appeared to him in a vision and said, essentially, Paul, time to get out of here because no one here is going to accept your testimony about me. And Paul protested, how can they not accept my testimony? I carry weight here. I'm as Jewish as they come. But Jesus was clear. He said, Paul, you need to go. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And now before this Jewish audience, that is as far as Paul got. He had said the word that lit the fuse. Gentiles. It wasn't just incomprehensible, it was nearly blasphemous to suggest that not only was Jesus Lord, but that the Jews had rejected the Lord, and that the Gentiles would and did accept him. And yet the whole story in Acts describes exactly that, the Jewish rejection of the word of God concerning Jesus, and the Gentile acceptance of the word of God concerning Jesus. So when Paul says Gentiles... The mob at the temple, which has been kind of quiet, now erupts again and shouts out, he's not fit to live. That's the end of scene one. Scene two begins at chapter 22 and verse 23. 
As the crowd now goes into a frenzy all over again, the tribune and his soldiers bring Paul back inside. And the tribune is now frustrated, wants to find out what's happened and why it happened. And so he orders that Paul be questioned under torture. And as Paul is stretched out to be whipped, he now plays his trump card. He says to the soldier, the centurion, so is it legal for you to torture a Roman citizen who has neither been tried nor found guilty of anything? And the answer, of course, is no, it's not legal. In fact, it's a pretty serious offense to do that. So the centurion rushes off to tell the tribune who gets all quivery and rushes back down to see Paul. You don't look like much. You're a citizen? I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Paul says, yeah, but I was a citizen by birth. In other words, I was born one. I'm a citizen. Honestly, you had to buy yours. Now the tribune is afraid. He's committed a blunder, a crime. And if word of this leaks out, he is in big trouble. Now he's going to cover his tracks, but that comes later. End of scene two. Scene three, Tribune still doesn't know what has gone on. So instead of going back to the mob, now he calls together a special meeting of the elders, the religious council. And that's what we had just read for us today. So the religious leaders come together. Paul is brought in. And he says right away, look, I have lived my life before God with a clear conscience. And the high priest, whose name is Ananias, and who history remembers as being a corrupt and violent man, commands, Paul, commands that Paul be struck. And Paul fires back, you hypocrite! How dare you break your own law by striking me while you're trying me by the law? May God strike you! And someone says, how dare you speak to the high priest like that? And Paul says, sorry, I didn't know he was the high priest. Now, in a formal meeting of the council, the high priest, the council, the high priest would have been immediately recognizable by his dress, by the robes that he wore. Paul knew who the high priest was. And I think Paul's being sarcastic here. Well, he sure doesn't act like a high priest. How was I supposed to know? Then Paul notices that the council is made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees, two religious parties of the Jews. Now, Sadducees essentially dismiss all things supernatural. No resurrection, no angels, no spirit. The Pharisees believe in all three of those things. And so Paul cries out, I'm only here because of my hope in the resurrection. And immediately an argument starts between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who are suddenly sympathetic to Paul. And sure enough, totally in character, verse 10, the dissension became violent. So once again, the tribune sends in his troops, gets Paul out of there. And I think the tribune is probably about ready to pull his hair out. The next night, Jesus appears to Paul and strengthens him for the long road that lies ahead. Jesus says, Paul, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. 
Now, Paul's intention had been to go to Rome. In Romans 15, he had written this to the Romans. I hope to see you and enjoy your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem. Well, here he is in Jerusalem, in chains. And Jesus says, hang in there. You will make it to Rome. And two years later, still in chains, Paul does make it to Rome. It's the end of scene three. Scene four, chapter 23, verse 12, to the end of that chapter. This whole Paul thing is now taking on a life of its own. It's getting out of control. Look what's happening now in verse 12 of chapter 23. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Now these 40 then tell this religious council to deceive the tribune by asking him to bring Paul back to them again. And these 40 would then ambush the group and kill Paul. And the council agrees to this plan. Now get this. These are the religious leaders who in theory are calling their people to purity and integrity before God, now tripping over themselves to do it wrong, compromising themselves all over the place. Well, Paul's nephew, this is the only reference, by the way, to Paul's family in all of Scripture. Paul's nephew gets wind of the plot, goes and tells Paul. Paul sends him to the tribune, and now the tribune has just about had enough calls together almost 500 soldiers to serve as an armed escort for Paul and ships Paul out of Jerusalem and to the governor in Caesarea, northwest of Jerusalem. And by way of explanation, he sends along a letter. And this is what he says. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the, uh, excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Hear that? He covers his tracks. He didn't find out until after. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Paul is then consigned by Felix to his cell, and Felix says, you know what, I will hear your case when your accusers arrive. End scene four. Scene 5 is chapter 24. The accusers arrive five days later and they state their case, which is basically, Paul is a plague to Jews everywhere and stirs up riots wherever he goes. Now, who's been stirring up the riots so far? He is a ringleader of Christians and we caught him in the act of trying to profane the temple, but we seized him in time. Ask him yourself. So Felix does, asks Paul. And Paul defends himself kind of like this. 
You can verify this. I was in the temple 12 days ago to worship, and no one found me stirring up a crowd. No one even found me arguing with a single person. But I confess that, yes, I worship God as a Christian, and I believe the law and the prophets. Now, when they found me in the temple, I was ritually clean. But some Jews from Asia had an issue with me, and either they should be here to state their case, or else these guys need to say and prove what crime I committed. And Felix, who had some knowledge of Christianity, puts his decision off, keeps Paul in custody, but allows Paul's friends the freedom to visit. Some days later, Felix comes with his wife, Drusilla, and sends for Paul. Now, Drusilla was a Jewish woman famous for her beauty. And because of that, Felix had tried and succeeded in seducing her away from her husband. And so she became his third wife. Felix himself had manipulated his way into the governorship. And again, history remembers him as a cruel and brutal man. And so before these two... Paul speaks of faith in Jesus, about righteousness, about self-control, and the coming judgment. I love Paul. Now, how do you think Felix responded to that? I'm surprised he didn't have Paul executed on the spot. I think probably only God prevented that. No, verse 25, Felix was alarmed and sent Paul back to prison. Now, he ended up talking with Paul quite often, But he wouldn't either convict or release him because Felix, corrupt Felix, was hoping for a bribe from the Jews. And the situation stayed like that for two years. End scene five. Scene six. Felix's term as governor comes to a close and the appointed governor now is Porcius Festus. The first thing he does is goes down to Jerusalem to try to curry favor with the Jews there. Wants to make a good impression. The first thing the Jews do is revive this case against Paul. And once again, they try to have Paul brought to Jerusalem so that they can kill him on the way. But instead, Festus invites them to go to Caesarea to bring charges against Paul. So they all go back to Caesarea. Once again, Paul is brought in for a hearing. And the Jews, chapter 25, verse 7, they bring all kinds of unprovable accusations against Paul. And Paul insists once more on his innocence. And Festus, wanting to do the Jews now a favor, asks Paul, would you be willing to go back to Jerusalem to be tried by the religious council? And finally, finally, Paul has had it up to here. And he explodes. This is what he says. Paul said, 25 verse 10, Look, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourself know full well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. 
Enough already. Your politics, your flimsy accusations drive me nuts. And here I am, still a prisoner after two years. I exercise my right as a Roman citizen. If you're not going to give me justice, I appeal to Caesar. I'm going all the way up. And Festus then has no choice. To Caesar you have appealed, he says. To Caesar you will go. End of scene six. Scene seven, final scene. And here we meet a new character. His name is Herod Agrippa. Let me tell you about his family. His great-grandfather had tried to have baby Jesus killed and also murdered his own wife and son. His great-uncle had had John the Baptist killed by cutting his head off. His father had had the apostle James killed in Acts chapter 12 by cutting his head off. And now Agrippa and Bernice, who is with him, In Acts 25, they were brother and sister, and Drusilla, Felix's wife, was their sister. Bernice had married her own uncle and was now with Agrippa. Nice family. Agrippa is king of the neighboring province, but because he's part of the Herod family, he's considered sort of an expert on Judaism, considered by the Romans to be so. So when he and Bernice come to Festus to welcome him as governor to pay their respects, Festus sees an opportunity. Look, he says, I got this prisoner here that Felix has left me. I've pursued things a bit, and it seems to me that nobody's been able to make a charge stick against this guy. They're just bent out of shape about some religious dispute, and I don't know anything about their religion. You do. has something to do with this guy who is dead, And Paul says, is alive again. When I asked Paul if he wanted to face his accusers in Jerusalem, he appealed to Caesar. I need your help. So Agrippa said, well, I'd like to hear. So the next day, once again, Paul is brought out for a hearing. But this is no ordinary hearing. Listen to verse 23. On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Paul is surrounded now by all the trappings of power and of wealth, king and queen, all decked out. Festus in his formal robes in honor of said king and queen military leaders, and a who's who of the city of Caesarea, which was the Roman capital of Judea. And Paul is paraded in, chained, and been a prisoner for two years. And Agrippa says, okay, Paul, you're on. And Paul tells his story again, but this, most of this audience is hearing it now for the first time. And he ends his story with, King Agrippa, I've just been obeying Jesus' words to me ever since my conversion. I've been telling Jews and Gentiles all over to repent and turn to God and to live like somebody who's repented. All that I've said has always agreed with the scriptures that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead and be a light for Jew and Gentile alike. 
I'm not sure how Agrippa would have been feeling about Paul's words about repentance and right living. But it's Festus who interrupts and shouts, Paul, you're crazy! To which Paul says, no, I'm entirely rational. And then he addresses Agrippa again. Look, you know all this. You're familiar with the Christian movement. It's public knowledge. Tell me, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Hey, morally dysfunctional Agrippa, from a long line of downright wicked and violent kings, do you believe the Bible? I think you do. And Agrippa's comeback is, do you think that just in these few minutes you're going to convince me to become a Christian? And then Paul says these magnificent words, this moment that the last two years have been building up to, the climax of these five chapters. He says, look, whether a few minutes or a long time, I would to God that everyone here would be like I am, except for these chains. If you could be anyone in the world, who would you be? Paul, nearly beaten to death, hated by his own people, unjustly kept in prison for two years because of politics, stands in chains before the powers that be, the most influential men in the country, and a king with the money and the power to get whatever he wants. And Paul looks around the room and says, I would rather be me. I have Jesus. All you have is money and power. I'm a prisoner, but you're slaves. I'm in chains, and I don't want you to be in chains, but the truth is I just might be the only free man in this room. I would rather be beaten, stoned, hated, slandered, locked up in the service of Jesus than to be on a throne without him. Jesus' servant is always better off than earth's kings. This is what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth or greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What about you today? Do you believe the scriptures? Do you believe truly that surrender to Jesus is better than any other life? We're 2,000 years and cultural light years away from first century Palestine. But you know what? The rival gods have not changed. It's still the same things that struggle for our allegiance. Power, pleasure, money, the adulation of other people, the ability to get whatever we want. And I want to tell you that Jesus, who died for your sin who rose again and lives today, Jesus, who calls you into his service, is not only just the true and rightful king, 
but he is the better and more satisfying king. So again, Christian, is Jesus your king or is he just a prince or even something less? And I can speak as one who has been stumblingly following Christ for 25 years. And I confidently say that if I could trade places with anyone in the world, living or dead, I wouldn't. In fact, I'd rather they could be me. I wish they could be what I am. George Beverly Shea, some of you know who he is, partner for many years with Billy Graham, wrote this song. I would rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I would rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. As you listen and as you go from here, I hope that this morning you have asked yourself the question, would I rather belong to Jesus than anything else? What is the place of my house and my job and my family and my car and my health and my relationships in my life in the whole context of Jesus in my life. Do you believe the scriptures that says that it is worth it to count everything as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus and that to be in his service is the very best life? you know what? It's true. It's hard to believe that in our culture. There's all kinds of voices telling us otherwise, but it's true. And if you are in Christ, then you shouldn't want to trade places with anyone because you have it best of all. Do you believe that? Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Lord, we don't wear chains on our hands and feet. But it is not unusual in our day and in this place to be shackled, to have our hearts bound. And if anything, even ourselves, if anything is on the throne other than you, then our heart is, by definition, bound and chained. And I believe and we affirm together that to follow you, Jesus, even as a slave, is better 
than to rule anywhere or anything else. And with all of the things that we bear and carry, we would rather carry them with you than to be free from them without you. So we affirm that to you, but with that, we also affirm that if we know that to be true, it's only because you yourself have first reached down and placed yourself in our lives. You have let us taste you. We've had the opportunity to compare you, to experience this life with you versus life without. So even as we say that you are the greatest We thank you for letting us know that. And I ask that you will help us, each one of us, every person in this room, in this building today, I ask that you would help us to not let anything else sit in the throne, that you would tell us if there is anything else that is shouldering its way into our allegiance. And we submit ourselves again to you with joy. And we do this in your name. We do it because you allow it. It's what in your name means. We say these things in the context of you and commit ourselves to it and ask for your help in living it out. Give to us what we need to do that. We pray this in your name. Amen. I want to bless you just with the simple words. Uh, benediction means good words, and that's what we call the blessing at the end of every service, the benediction. Here are some good words for you to take with you. May you live this coming week In the confident knowledge that as you walk with Jesus, you are walking the very best possible road. Hard things are going to happen to some of you this week. But if you're holding hands with Jesus, it is still the better life. May you know that. May it lead you to joy and to worship and to surrender and to courage. And as I say every week, go in peace because the Lord is with you. Amen. You're dismissed.